Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Director of Global Macro, Urian Timmer, joins us again on today's podcast. The U.S. Federal Reserve has been working hard the last year to tame inflationary pressures while avoiding a recession, a term known as a soft landing. Now, after one year of seven consecutive rate hikes and six straight months of cooling inflation, are the dreams of a soft landing close to reality? And has a soft landing already been priced into the markets? Yuri and Timmer unpacks all of this and more today with host Pamela Ritchie. And per usual, Urian's views will be supported by his in-demand charts, so please head to at TimmerFidelity on Twitter to follow along. This podcast was recorded on January 18th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hi, Urian. Great to see you. Good morning, Guy. Nice to see you, Pamela. Great to see you as well. I, I actually think I might see palm trees swaying in the background. You're somewhere beautiful. Uh, I'm spending a week at my home island of Aruba, where I was born and raised. And uh, my parents fly from Holland to, to visit my brother, which is where I am, um, every year at this time. And so I always take full advantage because flying from Boston to Aruba is a lot easier than flying to to Europe. Um, and my dad's 95, so it's not something I want to take for granted. So um, I'm here taking over my brother's kitchen and cooking for, for the extended family this week. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I wish you a, a lovely time and catch up. Let's go to actually the subject of one of your most recent uh, newsletters, your war report. Um, the soft landing has been priced in then? I, I think so. So the narrative clearly is is changing. Uh, the market is, you know, the S&P is back at 4,000 more or less. And it certainly does feel like it wants to push higher. You know, the last time it got there, the 200-day moving average kind of, you know, kept kept a lid on it and we started to fall off. And now since then, we've had, of course, the payroll report, the employment report a few Fridays ago, uh, which was, you know, constructive enough. Um, with the average hourly earnings number soft enough to kind of revive hopes of a soft landing that the, that the Fed can land the plane without crashing the plane. Um, and that the economy kind of holds up while inflation is defeated. <clears throat> and the CPI report, of course, um, lended itself further to that narrative. And then we've had some more data, including, uh, today with the PPI. But, but, you know, even like yesterday with the Empire report, which showed a lot of uh, manufacturing weakness. But when you look at the markets and where it's trading, you know, and you and I have gone back on this for a number of months, you know, last year, the market always seemed to be slightly ahead of itself, you know, in terms of what the PE was, where the, on, at which PE the market was trading, um, compared to what really was justified based on where the Fed said it was going to take rates, 
um, <clears throat> and where we thought maybe earnings would go uh, in a mild recession type of scenario. Um, and <clears throat> by the market trading kind of ahead of itself the whole time, we never got that sort of that juicy contrarian buying opportunity saying, you know, the market's underpricing uh, what we think might happen, and therefore you have um, a, a buy signal. So we never got that. So um, just to back up a little bit, uh, the market's sort of driven by two factors. The first slide we'll look at today is the Fed and the market, which was tweeted by Urian on January 18th. And again, that's at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter. And it's always two factors. It's always earnings and interest rates and maybe sentiment or the liquidity environment. And so when we start with interest rates, you know, this is a chart of the Fed funds rate, which is the orange line. Uh, the black line is the 10 year U.S. Treasury yield. Um, the purple bars is the dot plot, the Fed's dot plot, which is basically the Fed saying this is where we think rates are going to go based on <clears throat> the assessment of our individual FOMC members. And then the orange line is the forward curve, uh, the SOFR curve. Um, and what's interesting is that the market is not believing the Fed. Like the market believes that the Fed will go to five-ish percent, maybe just below it, which is what the Fed has been saying. But the Fed has been basically getting blue in the face, telling the markets like, listen, we're going to go to five and we're going to stay restrictive for a while. We're not going to pivot back down to a much lower yield <clears throat> until much further down the cycle. And the market's not having any of that. The market sees this big kink in the curve uh, back down to 3% or even below. And so that is part of the Goldilocks scenario that the market is believing, even though the Fed is telling it not to believe it. Uh, and that's one of the, the things that is going on. And there are others as well. Yeah, there's so many, and uh, you'll help. You'll take us through those um, with a number yeah. of these different charts. If yes, the Fed so, is not sorry, I just have one question. If the Fed yeah. is, um, if it doesn't cut, doesn't that mean it's because the economy's okay? I mean, isn't that bullish? Well, so so the juxtaposition of earnings and interest rates, and let's pull up slide two just so we can complete the the narrative here. And for us, that slide is peaks in EPS growth, tweeted on January 17th. So the market's driven by earnings and interest rates, right? You look at a discounted cash flow model, you, you look at projected cash flows or earnings in the numerator, you discount them by a denominator, which is the cost of capital, and outcomes to present value of future cash flows, and that's your valuation model. So, <clears throat> so we just saw the, the rate side, which is a rapid pivot from restrictive back to neutral, you know, from five to three, three percent is neutral. Uh, so that's one part. The other part is that uh, in this chart we show peaks in earnings growth, and the, the gray bars show the peak in earnings growth, which happened exactly a year ago in January of last year. And earnings growth has gone from plus fifty percent or so to basically zero this year um, uh, when you when you exclude the energy sector. And but the estimates are that earnings will kind of tread water in 2023 and then start to improve again in 2024. So to, to answer your question, when you take those two things, the Fed going very quickly from restrictive back to neutral or lower, 2.7% is the current forward curve out a year from now, uh, with the expectation that earnings are going to soft land, right? They're going to go from a positive 
delta to neutral to zero back to positive. That is a soft landing if there ever was one. And so it seems that those two things are at odds with each other, right? If the Fed is going to pivot as hard as the market expects, I would think it's doing that because it needs to because the economy is entering recession. If that's the case, then earnings should not be soft landing. They should be going down 15, 20 percent. And that's, I think, where the market is trying to have its cake and eat it, too. Fascinating. Okay. Yeah. I mean, wh- what is it with the market wanting to see through this so quickly? I wonder if we can pivot at this point to sort of looking at the market reaction to to the global story. And I, I know we'll come back, but it, it's just so astonishing to watch some of the rally that we're seeing ex-US. I mean, we can talk about the US and North America too, but it's it's really quite something. Is is that, um, what's, the, what's the strength? I think that plays a role. And, you know, one thing worth noting is that the, that the global economy is a lot less synchronized than it has been, right? You think back to the financial crisis, you think back to COVID, like the, the lockdown. Those were global shocks that affected all markets. Um, and for instance, you know, after the financial crisis in 09, the whole global market rallied after the lockdowns. Basically, the same thing happened. But the emerging markets were kind of left behind because, as we know, China basically never reopened until just now, right? Because it had a zero COVID policy. And so I think what might be happening is here is that because the cycle is more fragmented, that even if the U.S. is going into a recession, and certainly we have to respect the leading indicators of a you know very steeply inverted yield curve and the Fed going well into the restrictive zone, so we, we can't dismiss history and say, well, the U.S. is going to soft land. Maybe it will. I, like, I'm not an economist, but we do have to respect the, the, you know, the signal of the yield curve and, and where the Fed says it's going. But if China and therefore emerging markets are on the uh, literally on the opposite side of that cycle spectrum, right? The U.S. is going into a contraction maybe later this year. While the U.S. is fi- while China is finally emerging out of the COVID era, um, maybe that creates enough cross currents that it will look like a soft landing. It just it will be a hard landing in one place and an expansion wow. in another place, right? And that and that actually is is a good uh, reminder that when we look at market cycles, and I'm guilty of this as much as any, we tend to look at averages or medians of different outcomes, and that's how we aggregate that into a narrative. But every cycle is different, and there weren't, there haven't been that many cycles, right? Even if you go back 100 years, there's only a couple of dozen cycles. So creating that average can be very um, misleading, or, or it can only tell part of the story. So I think what what is happening this time is that, A, you have this desynchronized global cycle. Uh, and this is why EM and also Europe, because the dollars coming down, have done so well. Um, and also, I think it's the confusion that comes from applying a linear lens to a nonlinear situation, right? Like we know that price leads earnings at inflection points, like over the very long term, price follows earnings. That's the mantra we have at Fidelity, of course, with the equity funds. Like you, you, you buy the, the the companies that have that earnings potential, and then the price will follow, and that's certainly true. But during a cycle, price often leads earnings because everyone is anticipating the future, and the market did derate 31% last year when you look at the PE ratio in the S&P. So 
it's plausible that if you do have a soft landing or a very mild contraction, maybe down 10% for earnings, that the market has already anticipated that, it already priced for it, and it's already moving on. But it's it's a delicate needle to thread because if we have something worse than a very mild dip and we do have a more traditional recession and it comes, let's say, the second half of this year, then the, the low, which was last October, seems premature at that point. And that's why my overall outlook has been that 2023 will be kind of a choppy, frustrating year that will neither please the bulls nor the bears. Right, right. Something to, uh, yeah, something to offend everyone, or as they say sometimes. Um, I have to ask this, and I know most of the investors on uh, joining you here have seen uh, many, many, many debt ceiling discussions, uh, to put it generously. There will be another one this year. What if it coincides, for instance, with the slowdown that we're talking about in the second half of the year? I mean, what do they need to know one way or the other? Yeah, so this is a movie that you and I and probably everyone watching has seen many, many times. And I know I get this question all the time. Whenever there is a debt ceiling, you know, fiscal cliff, uh, when I'm on TV, it's like the first question. Um, it's a good headline grabber. And my answer has always been very unsatisfying, at least to the audience. And that is that this, this is a situation that has literally always been resolved. The, the can gets kicked down the road. It's an opportunity for political parties to grandstand and make get four points, knowing that the, the situation isn't going anywhere. Like, like everyone um, on either side of the fence knows that it will get resolved because it has to be resolved because you can't, the government can't function if it doesn't get resolved. But then for the next election, they can score points saying, see, I was that person that stood up for principle and this and that. So it's, it's a very easy, it's low hanging fruit if you're a politician, because you can score points without there being any consequence. Having said that, and so, and the matter always gets resolved sooner or later. Um, having said that, we seem to have a particularly, let me say, toxic bunch in, in the House of, uh, of Representatives this year. Uh, and we saw that already with the election of the Speaker McCarthy and how long that took and a few holdouts who really didn't seem to care about anything other than making a point, right? Um, and so you do wonder if this year is going to be particularly, um, you know, spicy in terms of the, the whole debt ceiling showdown. And we already see uh, Janet Yellen on the tape saying we're going to run out of cash around June. And so it's going to play out this summer. Maybe there's a, a government shutdown, you know, October 1st. And so we need to be prepared that with this particular Congress, that um, they, you know, that the people in in the House are not going to hesitate to take this all the way to the brink. But having said that, this is something that has always gotten resolved, and it, it is political grandstanding. There will be bargaining, like the Democrats are already saying, they want a clean debt ceiling passed. They don't want any conditions to it. That's obviously not going to happen. The Republicans are on the other side. And usually they will meet in the middle just because there, there really is no choice. You know, you, I mean, you have to operate the, the government and, uh, you know, debt is a bipartisan thing. You know, Donald Trump created a lot of debt. Uh, you know, President Biden created a lot of debt or the Congress under their watches. So this is not, uh, this, this is not a partisan thing. Um, 
debt has been around and it will continue to be around and the debt ceiling will be increased at some point. Um, and I think the markets will mostly look through it. There will be some shenanigans in the T-bill markets where, 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 where like the T-bills that mature right around the shutdown will have a spike in yield. But, and, but then that, that will then pass and the yield curve will resume to neutral. And again, for the market, for the stock market, unless there's a lasting impact on the economy and therefore on earnings, um, the market will, will always look through it. Uh, but like you said, if, if this is happening at a time when earnings revisions are really getting hit and the recession scenario or narrative picks up steam, then it could be icing on the cake for a market that is already under pressure. But you know, again, we're, we're at S&P 4000, so we're, we're far from being in that place right now. I have to ask you, uh, there's a term that we used to use all the time a couple of years ago. Um, we just haven't used it lately, which is the dual mandate of the Fed. Talk us through yeah. the labor situation. It's strong. It's not It's not doing what I think lots of people thought it needed to do for a recession to happen. It's part of the soft landing discussion, obviously. Um, but what does the Fed think of that? I mean, that is their dual mandate. What What do they do with that piece these days? How do they fit that in? I think, yes, so the Fed has a dual mandate, uh, uh, full employment, <clears throat> and certainly they've accomplished that, right? I mean, the unemployment rate is three and a half. So by anyone's definition, we are at full employment. And when you look at the JOLTS report, which shows how many job openings there are, at full employment, there are 10 million jobs open. Um, and part of the, the, the pressure in the jobs market <clears throat> is the fact that, you know, close to 3 million people left the labor force during the lockdowns, right? I mean, the baby boomers, about 2.6 million of them said, you know what, I'm out of here. Um, and so that has created an imbalance in the labor market where there's not enough supply of labor. Uh, and so that's one mandate. The other one, of course, is price stability, which is 2% core, uh, core PCE, add about a half a point for the CPI. So you got 2.5% on the CPI. And obviously the Fed is very far from reaching that, although the numbers are clearly going um, in our favor now. Um, um, I think core PCE, core inflation is now below 6%, which is still very high, of course. And so <clears throat> the Fed has a dual mandate and the two mandates are at odds and they, they're at odds exactly in the opposite way that they were exactly. during COVID, right? At that point, we had a massive spike in unemployment while, you know, inflation was plummeting because the economy was locked down. And you remember Jay Powell saying, you know, we want everyone back in the bus. We're not going to stop you know easing until everyone is employed and now it's literally the opposite and so the fed is trying to thread the needle um and the fed's track record on needle threading is not is not particularly great right like greenspan pulled the rabbit out of the hat in 1994 but that's because inflation was never uh, a clear and present danger at that at that time so i think what the fed would like to do is that 10 million open jobs, it would like to reduce that to zero without actually creating a spike in the unemployment. Uh, because if you can, if you can recalibrate the jobs market so that there is less demand for labor while everyone who has a job keeps a job, then, then wage inflation will come down towards the Fed's target and everyone is happy. And that's how you get your soft landing. The problem, of course, or the challenge is that the Fed has extremely blunt instruments, right? It has interest rates and balance sheet. 
it, it, it is both of its mandates are lagging indicators. And so the risk of an overshoot uh, is always high, but it's especially high this time because the Fed waited so long to normalize policy in the first place. And so I think the Fed would like to thread that needle, land the plane, uh, take the excess out of the labor market, but have everyone keep their jobs. Um, but again, what are the likelihood that the Fed can can fine tune an outcome when it uses very blunt instruments following lagging indicators to get there? So, so take us to the overall story of the Fed keeping its eye on sort of the equity market and, and where the equity valuation story is. You mentioned kind of off the top of the, the massive derating, obviously, we saw last year. Where, where does this leave us in, in order, again, for investors to take a look at this equity market? So, the, so uh, slide six shows three different measures of valuation that, I've, that have served me well during this bear market cycle. For us, slide six is the first equity valuation slide that Urian tweeted on January 19th. And this will be followed by the second equity valuation chart tweeted next. Uh, One is your typical DCF model, your discounted cash flow model. That's the little purple line. And you can see that little bond bubble there. That was in 2021 when the Fed, through its balance sheet actions, uh, really suppressed uh, interest rates, right? The 10-year Treasury yield on a real basis was at, at minus one and a half, minus two percent, and that was a little bond bubble created by the Fed that then uh, created excessive valuation in the stock market. Because, as we said at the top of the show, uh, the DCF model is you know discounted earnings, so you calculate the present value of future earnings growth. And if the discount rate goes down, the present value goes up. So that was the little bond bubble. Um, the other two um, indicators are based on the two-year nominal treasury yield, which is a good proxy for where the Fed cycle is at, as well as the 10-year real yield, which is a very important indicator for sort of risk appetites and, and real economic growth. And you can see that all of them have kind of gone in the same direction. Um, and the gray line, of course, is the actual forward P.E., and so the story for last year during that ongoing 28% decline in the S&P was that <clears throat> that gray line was never never went below the other lines. So there was never that that bell ringing moment where you can say, ah, the market is cheap. It's underpricing or under it's over discounting a bad outcome. And so now, as you can see on the right hand side of that chart, that gray line is at 7.55. So that's it's trading at 17 and a half times expected earnings. Uh, and that's north of the other three lines. Now, if we go to the next chart, what I've done here is I've put in a few assumptions for the coveted soft landing. So the right. Fed lands the plane. It, that allows it to pivot back to a neutral policy, which would be around 3%. And at the same time, earnings hold up, right? Right. So right now the expectations are for earnings to grow, uh, you know, 8% in 2022. Uh, that's behind us, but fourth quarter earnings season is about to start, but 2% or 1% X energy, and then a couple of percent in 2023, and then 10% in 2024. So this chart on the right, I put in those assumptions that the consensus is correct about both the Fed and earnings growth. But guess what? If that consensus is correct, the valuation that the market is currently trading at would be the fair value valuation. And wow. so it's another way of showing or saying that the market 
has already priced in a soft landing. It's already there, right? So at that point, the soft landing either happens, in which case it's already priced in, or the soft landing doesn't happen, in which case the market's over its skis. And so the only way that I can see for the market to keep rallying is for there to be a no landing scenario, that the, the mar- that, that there isn't even much of a slowdown or there is a slowdown, but it doesn't last long or it's offset, like we said earlier, by the China recovery, right? We can't underestimate the, 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 the potential for that. And so, but to me, that there is no, there's no clear opportunity to say, you know, I'm buying it at a contrarian uh, point here because a soft landing scenario is pretty hard to pull off. Uh, and even if the Fed can do it, it's already priced in. So, and that's why I, I kind of stay with the scenario for 2023 that I think it's going to be kind of a choppy, frustrating year where neither bull nor bear is going to feel very satisfied. Clearly, we're off to a good start. Um, and maybe that continues. Maybe we go to S&P 4200 or 4300. But I, I don't think it's going to be, I don't think that's the start of a new bull market. I think it's kind of still the base building phase of, of, uh, of a market that is still licking its wounds from last year. But again, that, de- that desynchronized global, um, global growth story uh, is something that we should really pay attention to because we haven't really seen that in quite a while. And and just to sort of go further on, maybe something moving sideways or, or getting to the point really where the best is already in, in the market, that, that's sort of the same question in some ways. Um, what about applying that to China? I mean, it's been extraordinary watching this this rally as we started out saying EM, Europe. I mean, it's is that it? The next slide we'll look at is global earnings growth. At the time of recording, this chart was last tweeted on December 16th, but a more recent version may now be available. So it's it's interesting, you know, we've had eight years, so since 2014, where the big growth companies in the U.S. have dominated not only the U.S. markets, but therefore the entire global markets, right? Because the S&P is very growth heavy, much more so than Europe and EM. So if the big growers are leading the U.S., then that means that the U.S. is leading the rest of the world. And we've had eight, nine years of that. Um, and now the U.S. clearly is heading for a slowdown. The Fed is, is committed to doing that. The Fed keeps saying, do not underestimate what we will do here to uh, preserve our credibility. And as a result, you know, we had, um, you see here the year over year earnings uh, growth chart. This is the change in forward estimates. And you see that red line is uh, the MSCI EM, and they've been in a contraction, right? And so the U.S., uh, at the top, they all were growing at the same rate, but the U.S. has held up much higher, much better so far. And the reason for that, of course, is that China basically remained in a lockdown well after the rest of the world got out of its lockdown. So EM has lagged over the last couple of years as that happened. And now that the rest of the world, or at least the U.S., is slowing down and possibly going into recession, while China finally has that delayed reopening, uh, you have a perfect storm of that those lines converging. And I think that's really the story that we're seeing in EM. 
So, so point out for us the indicators that, that institutional investors want to keep an eye on. We all know that reopenings, this point we're all experts, can be messy. They don't all sort of reopen in lockstep like dominoes in some ways. What do we need to keep an eye on for a Chinese reopening, any reopening? Uh, well, you look at the you know the price of raw materials, of course, copper, and and uh, th- those are you know doing better. Uh, oil is maybe slightly different, just because that is a play on global growth as well. But the industrial metals certainly are a play on that. Um, the relative performance of of earnings estimates, and and you can see it. I don't have the chart uh, this week, but you can see that the revisions for U.S. and developed markets relative to emerging markets, and sp- certainly the China are starting to converge, right? The difference between earnings estimates, uh, the, the progression of earnings estimates between the US and China has never been greater. It's like the Delta is like 50%. It's like, it's, you know, it's it's huge. And so I think the reopening will be messy. And, and one of the reasons is of course, a, a, a health reason that, uh, you know, I'm no, I'm, no, I'm no health expert, but my understanding is that the Chinese population is under vaccinated relative to other parts of the world. Um, and that their vaccines maybe were not as good because uh, they're not mRNA vaccines. So there is a health toll that if you all of a sudden say, you know what, and literally the rule is by March, there will be no restrictions at all. So people are going to get COVID. Uh, it's going to potentially overload the hospitals. Maybe that will cause kind of more targeted lockdowns within China. So like you said, it, it'll be a nonlinear, messy uh, path. But I, but it looks like the Chinese government is committed to do this, and um, and that means that activity will will resume in a pretty big way, and Chinese people will 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 travel. There'll be you know revenge travel, like we all saw you know on, on this side of the world. Um, so I think that's all that's all happening now. Take a, a look at Europe for us. Um, it's rallied off the bottom. There are lots of reasons for it to be at a bottom. Um, yeah. However. It's where does it go from here? That's sort of the question. So I so there's there's a couple of things here. So the the, the global allocation story I think is is fascinating um, because uh, there's always a temptation to buy cheap, right? So the U.S. is trading at seventeen and a half times uh, expected earnings. Europe, EM, Japan are trading at around eleven, twelve times. So there's a very big discount there, but you know, valuation discounts can be a trap, right? We call them a value trap. So ultimately, the relative performance between regions and countries will be the result of relative earnings. Um, and we showed earlier the convergence of earnings estimates now starting to happen. And of course, when we think about non-US or non-Canada or non-North America earnings, we have to find a common denominator, which is the U.S. dollar, when we aggregate those, right? I mean, there's no single currency. I mean, there is for Europe, of course, but not for like X, X North America. So the dollar plays a very big role in that as well. Uh, but ultimately, relative performance will come from relative earnings, and the dollar plays a big role in that. And right now, you have all of those things working uh, in, in our favor. And on top of that, we have these potentially secular tailwinds finally starting to happen. Next is top 50 versus bottom 450, followed by secular rotation, both tweeted together on December 15. 
we had this period where the nifty 50 and we've talked about this you know the, the 50 largest companies in the s p 500 so this includes the fangs the big growers the big free cash flow growers to me this is the relative performance of those 50 against the next 450 we've had three distinct periods over the past uh, 60 years or so where they have vastly outperformed the rest of the market. One was the original Nifty 50 of the early 70s. One was the late 90s, the tech bubble. And that the, the third one was, of course, the, the 20, the, the, the 2000 teens to, to just last year. And to me, this looks like a trend reversal. Um, and so if that's the case, then the big growers, uh, have stopped outperforming. And if we then go to the next slide, when you look at what happens next, obviously, if the top 50 are underperforming, uh, that doesn't have to be in a down market, by the way. It, it can be in a sideways to up market. But when that happens, that by definition means that everything else is then outperforming. And this chart kind of illustrates that. This, this chart goes all the way back to 1880, so very, very long history. And in the bottom, I show the 10-year compound annual growth rate, or CAGR, of value versus growth, small versus large, XUS versus US stocks, and commodities versus stocks. And you can see that there, you know, this is a very, very long cycle that spans about three decades each. So it's not something we can mi micro time, but you can see that we're kind of due for a secular period of, of the, the leadership changing, broadening out to more value, to more small caps, to non US stocks. So it's possible that we're only at the first inning of a much longer period where uh, mm. it will be a more level playing field where you can actually do some really good active allocation and active management away from just that very narrow concentration of five or 10 stocks that have dominated over the past 10 years. So it's, it's a good story because it becomes a stock picker's market. Fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, your thoughts, your views and everything that you've brought. My pleasure. My pleasure. Good to see you. Good to see you. That's Yuri and Timur joining us. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. Until the next time.